I think we are now live, um, only a few minutes late tonight. Um, so thank you for people who are just starting to link into the feed. Uh, and it is just wonderful to have Dr. Jim Chalmers, the Shadow Treasurer, with me tonight on a really a very significant day in Australia's history. Uh, for many people, it will be the first experience of recession in Australia. For those of us who are older, it is not the first experience, uh, but every recession is different. And this one's certainly uh, proving to be one of the challenges that, that there, we hope we'll be able to find solutions to. Um, for those who don't know Jim, Jim's a Queenslander, but let's forgive him that, shall we? <laughs> Uh, just for one night. Just for tonight. Um, <laughs> Jim entered Parliament in 2013 and my first experience of him was as Shadow Finance Minister and uh, since 2019 he's stepped into the Shadow Treasurer role uh, and really, Jim, you have chosen or been chosen to be Shadow Treasurer at one of the most significant times in, in Australia's recent history. Uh, so everyone will be really keen to hear your thoughts on where we are, how we move forward, and a whole range of questions have come in. Now, for those watching, if you'd like to ask a question, pop it into the comments on the Facebook feed, and my team will bring those comments to me. Uh, and I've got phones and iPads here. Uh, to collect those questions. So we'll, I'll be throwing those to, to Jim as they come through. Uh, it's a little bit like Q&A, Jim, um, <laughs> but, but hopefully more fun. Well, it'll be a good warm-up, Susan, because I'm on Q&A next Monday if people want to tune in next right. Monday night. Fantastic. Well, look, there's the there's a challenge. Let's give Jim a really good drive. <laughs> Uh, we can do tricky questions as well as nice questions. And, um, look, can we just start, I think, by getting your take on where we find ourselves today? I know you've been in the media talking about it all, all day, but as you've reflected as the day's gone on, what are your thoughts on the uh, data that came out today, the Treasurer's comments and what it says about Australia's economy? Yeah. Hey, thanks very much, Susan. Before I answer that specifically, just thanks for the opportunity to have a have a chat tonight, uh, and to, to people from your community. I think um, uh, there's no community which has probably been um, more affected by the the you know both crises that we've had in the last six months or so. The the bushfires, obviously, and then the the COVID crisis and everything that's flowed from that. And um, you know, I I. I think everybody appreciates just what a champion you've been for that community. So thanks for the opportunity to have a chat. Susan and I were talking before uh, about our choice of days, um, today being the day that the, was the biggest release of the economic data every three months. And Susan was saying it might be a, a hard day to talk about, it, but I think it's actually the perfect day to talk about where we're up to because um, we did get a, a pretty comprehensive snapshot uh, of the economy over the first three months of the year, the, the March quarter. And what we saw was that the economy shrank in the March quarter, which is uh, not great news on its own, but particularly when you consider that uh, every economist on the planet uh, thinks that the, the next quarter, the June quarter that we're in now, is going to be even more difficult. So for that reason, uh, even the, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, but really everybody um, has now conceded that Australia is in recession. 
for the first time in 29 years, uh, which is pretty amazing. It's not the first recession of my life, but it's the first recession of my working life. Uh, for my for my generation, people haven't been uh, in the labour market during a recession. And so I think a lot of the people that I grew up with around here in Logan City in, in Queensland uh, are about to discover what that is like, unfortunately. Uh, so we've got some big challenges in the economy. Uh, I think it is good uh, that uh, communities right around Australia have done a, a good job doing the right thing on the main in, in trying to limit the spread of the virus itself. Uh, but it will be even harder still to try and limit the economic consequences of, of all of that. Uh, and we're seeing some of that play out already. I did see you get asked today, do you think in looking, now that we've got the um, recessionary data, do you think that we were uh, too tough with restrictions? And and you, you, I think it was Patricia Carvelis who was asking you, and you said, well, it's always got to be health first. Uh, and that's really been our guiding principle as Labor, hasn't it? Health before wealth and people, you, you know, you, it's going to be tough, but you can't get lives back if, if lives are lost. Yeah. Uh, so that spot, has been the choice we've made. Yeah, spot on. Um, and uh, it's been difficult for people to comply with some of these restrictions. And I know you, you and I speak a lot about the small, business, small businesses in your community, you having come from that part. Uh, of the economy. And so, I mean, we do know how tough it is on a lot of businesses uh, during these restrictions. But I guess what people understand, and it's heartening that people have taken this view in very difficult times, which is the worst thing you can do for the economy is to let this thing run rampant. Uh, and if it did, and we, we did have some um, worrying predictions at the start of all this, if the thing gets out of control as it has in the United States or Italy or the UK and elsewhere, um, that will devastate business for even longer. So we have on the main done the right thing. We've gotten on top of it. We've limited the spread arguably better than, than almost any other country on the planet. That's a tribute to, us, to Australians and to Australia. Um, but now we've got to exercise the same kind of discipline and care and consideration uh, as the place starts to reopen again to make sure that we can keep a lid on the virus get people's businesses open again, get people back to work and see what we can do to, to manage this recovery the best we can. Um, one of the other things that was made clear today is that the figures that we're seeing, the GDP figures, they really only include less than two weeks of what we probably call the lockdown of the economy. So they're really reflecting what was happening in the first quarter and certainly in my part of the world, in the Blue Mountains and the Hawkesbury, the bushfires meant we were feeling the economic impact um, in a really big way. And we were feeling it after, we all thought it had been a pretty sluggish economy coming forward. And I've been saying that in parliament for uh, a good, probably 14, 15 months, as, as we all have. Um, so just, just tell me in terms of now that you see the data, does it feed into the belief that we had and the other indications that the economy was already soft, bushfires were, you know, another really big hit and it, this isn't all just COVID? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and one of the challenges that we have, not to be kind of partisan about it, but it, objectively, when you look at the economy the way that it finished last year, 2019, there were already a lot of things about the economy we were worried about. Uh, quarterly growth was slowing in the economy. Um, productivity was pretty well flat. Business investment had gone backwards for a couple of quarters in a row, which is extremely troubling. Our wages were stagnant. Uh, we had a lot of debt in the system. Household debt was at record highs. 
Uh, and so already towards the end of the last year, before the worst of the fires, uh, and certainly before most of us could even spell coronavirus, um, we had a lot of challenges in the economy. And I think it's important to recognise that because a lot of the conversation now is how do we get back to where we were, whereas as, as Labor people, and again, uh, we've spoken about this in the Parliament on our side, the challenge is not to kind of snap back to how things were because there was a few things about the economy we didn't like. The choice is how do we do better after this crisis? What do we learn from not just the crisis itself but what was going on beforehand so that we don't just snap back to that and we do something better in the aftermath? Look, can we talk about some... Um, I had an, a message from Tim who runs an ecotourism business and he was his business has lost 90% of its custom because it's overseas tourists, you know, World Heritage Area doing fantastic eco tours. Um, he thinks that, and so he's been eligible for JobKeeper, and he says JobKeeper has been a lifesaver. And we knew that a wage subsidy was going to be absolutely essential, that job seeker unemployment benefits were not going to be a magic bullet in the circumstances we're in. And as a small business, I think he, his comments really endorse the um, what we badgered the government to do. Um, but he says even though he's shifting his focus to domestic tourism, he thinks at best he'll be able to get 20% of his previous turnover. And he's really worried about what happens when JobKeeper finishes in September. Now, this is the recurring theme that I get from small businesses. They've only just got JobKeeper, like in the last couple of weeks, they've been yeah. able to sleep a bit more easily at night. And that's how it translates to small business, you know, whether you sleep at night or not. Um, but now they're worrying about post-September. Uh, yeah. What do you see? Are you seeing any signs that the government's listening to us on this? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased, Tim, that in the first instance, you're able to access JobKeeper. That's a you know, you, you, businesses like yours are the entire reason why we why we were calling for wage subsidies before, um, yeah, before they were cool. <laughs> uh, we were calling for them in the parliament. So we're pleased that you've been able to access it. A lot of the work that, that I do in my community and that Susan does in hers is about trying to make sure as many people as possible can access it because for those who do, it makes a difference. So uh, it's good that you can. Um, you know, if one of the things that actually keeps us awake at night in the same regard is um, having done, having put these wage subsidies in place, uh, which are a good idea because they remain, a, they maintain a connection between your workers and your business. So people don't go off to Centrelink and then, you know, that we're sort of, there's a lot of uncertainty trying to get them back at some later point. So that's the objective and we want to see it served. But what I'm worried about is we spend all of this money on these good wage subsidies or what should be good wage subsidies. But all we might have done is turn a kind of a March, April, May problem into a September, October, November problem if we don't get the, the kind of the end of it right or not even the end of it. But how do we smooth out the fact that currently your workers will lose JobKeeper on the last weekend in September and when we think about why that's inappropriate, we've really got businesses like yours in mind because for, for businesses that rely on the opening of the international border, the idea that everything's going to be sweet at the end of September is ridiculous, frankly. I mean, it's we'd love it to be different. And some sectors of the economy will recover quickly and some people will be able to operate on their own feet um, in October, November. But with, with the greatest respect, if you lost 90% of your tourism business, then I, I'm, I'm sure we can agree that that's unlikely to come roaring back in the last weekend of September. And so we need to do better there. In terms of what I think the government will do, 
I was really worried for a long time that they would just be pig-headed about it. Um, but there are some smoke signals now uh, that indicate maybe they are starting to realise how big a problem this is. The Treasurer talked today about how we were looking at falling off a cliff in the economy. I think they are discovering or, or understanding now that there's just a cliff. Of, we've just moved the cliff a few months down the track. And so uh, hopefully they address it. They've got a review of JobKeeper which they were going to do this month, they're now going to do next month, which is a little bit disappointing. But hopefully in that process, uh, they come up with a kind of a glide path out of JobKeeper where it's better targeted to businesses like yours. Maybe it's tapered off in some regard. Um, you know, we clean up some of the things where people are probably getting more money than they should be. Uh, and in all of that, hopefully we can come up with a better system that doesn't leave you hanging uh, at the end of September. Yeah, I've had a number of conversations with travel, people involved in travel. Look, travel agents as well, they feel that like they've been, um, their issues have not been as obvious at the moment because they've been really busy refunding people, trying to organise refunds. Uh, but they're also saying the same thing. Their business, look, nothing will be happening in September. It'll it will be whenever international borders really lift for Australians that they start to see an improvement and then they'll see a rush and want to be ready for it. But the travel industry, like the arts and entertainment industry uh, and, and like universities, really feel that, that their sector, they need sector-specific support. And that's obviously what we've been calling for. Um, there were promises of a, of a package from the government on the arts and entertainment sector, and I, I saw reports that the talks had perhaps hit a bit of a stumbling block there. Uh, are there any other sectors, though, that you think need specific uh, assistance in the longer term? Yeah. Uh, well, arts and entertainment uh, obviously is one of the most uh, important ones. Uh, tourism broadly, clearly. Uh, we're worried about residential construction. Uh, we're worried about a lot of um, tradespeople's jobs um, because, as you can imagine, there was you know a few months of work kind of lined up when the crisis hit, uh, and that is more or less coming to an end. And so there's going to be a problem there that needs to be addressed. Um, can, can I jump in with a specific question there about about that? Um, Sophie's asking just on the construction um, reports of the what the construction. Um, package might look like. What are your views on the possible stimulus me measures around the rumoured renovation grants? Yeah. Well, this is proving to be pretty contentious. I get a lot of questions about this. Um, let, let's see what they announce in, in regards to that. Um, it's a bit hard to kind of respond in detail that some, to something that hasn't been announced in detail. Yes. But I think the, uh, yeah, I think the, the main issue that we have with where they seem to be headed on residential construction or the, the kind of building industry uh, is that uh, um, social housing, public housing, hasn't seemed to have gotten a look in. And I, I would find it really disappointing, frankly, if they found a billion dollars to support the building industry, which is a good thing, but they couldn't find a cent to support to build some new public housing. Um, I think what I thought the objective is, if we're going to spend a boatload of money and that's what's being spent here just stupendous amounts of money extraordinary amounts of money if we're going to do that we should be looking for win-wins and in public housing arguably there's no bigger win-win than public housing because you create the jobs in building the stock and then you create a lasting benefit 
for the most vulnerable people in our communities and in our country. And so I, I, I genuinely can't quite understand. Hopefully we're wrong and there's a big social housing package uh, on its way, but it doesn't seem to be. Uh, mm. And that would that would be disappointing. And that was one of the things that came out of our response to the GFC. There was some really good work done in expanding social housing, and we got that in this electorate uh, around the Springwood Blacksland area. So, uh, you mentioned Springwood, um, Susan. We we've got the only two Springwoods in Australia. We've talked about this before. Sometimes when I uh, you get onto Google Maps or something like that, and you put Springwood in there, I get somewhere in the blue, somewhere near the Blue Mountains. Well, you know, you need to come and visit and. and <laughs> You know, there's a there's a, an Instagram post in that, and <laughs> on that idea that you just raised about getting some benefit out of what we do, there's been a couple of questions come through uh, that pick up on the theme of not going back to what we had, and Nick mm. Nick sort of touches on this really finding an opportunity to really help people. Partly, he's suggesting by not taking uh, Job Seeker back to its um, original level pre-corona supplement. Um, and Phil says, um, oh, no, Phil's was about September. Someone else has asked a question just in terms of, oh, bringing back manufacturing, using it as an opportunity to invest in the areas that can really make a benefit. And social housing is clearly one. But obviously there's a lot of support for Australian to be manufacturing again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think what the what the crisis has taught us is, um, you know, the kind of hollowing out of manufacturing, which has happened for a range of reasons, not just government policy, but including government policy, uh, has meant that when we really needed some capacity, we couldn't quite stack it up really quickly. In some areas we could, you know, we could turn a distillery into making hand sanitizer. We could do some of those sorts of things. All that gin. Um, all that gin. <laughs> You've got a yeah. number of local distilleries here who have done just that. Is that right? Wow. They also make great gin. Well, the sooner they, we can get them back to making gin, the, the better for, for everyone. Um, uh, but, yeah, so it has been important that some, um, uh, you know, plants have been able to be agile like that and switch their production. But I think what it, this crisis has taught us is we need, we need more of that. We need more of that capacity. Um, I think the most important thing to understand about manufacturing is we can't just wake up as a country one morning and decide we want to do more of something or less of something else. We've got to make sure we get the foundations of it right. And one of the reasons why I'm such a, uh, you know, a zealot, frankly, about getting energy policy right is because I, I spent a lot of time with manufacturers, um, including some who have been right on the edge even before this crisis. And the number one thing they raised with me, in fact, the number one thing that business broadly raises with me is how do we get our business costs down when it comes to energy? Uh, and they can't understand, and, and I know where they're coming from, they can't understand why the big parties can't come together on at least a kind of a framework for energy so the business knows what they're investing into. We've got a big business investment problem in this country, and it's partly a function of all of these false starts and the 19 different energy policies that we've had in the last seven years. So if we want manufacturing, we've got to get energy right, We've got to get skills and training right so people can keep up with technology. And we've also got to get commercialisation right, which is just a fancy way of saying we've got to be better at turning our ideas into jobs. And if we do those three things, the underlying things, and there's no reason why we can't have more manufacturing if we want it in our economy.
Um, you've, you've mentioned energy and one of the questions that came in uh, in the lead up to tonight was from Lynette who actually asked about the gas-led recovery and, and what your view is around it. Her concern is that it's taking money from ARENA that she sees should be used for renewable energy and renewable jobs mm. um, and exploiting really the opportunity of the pandemic for the, to support the fossil fuel industry. Is that your take on it or, or is it more nuanced? A little bit more nuance, not a lot, not a lot more nuance though. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I think you know, Susan, I'm a, I'm a massive believer in the potential and the capacity of renewable energy for its own good, but also because I think it's going to be an amazing source of jobs yeah. and it's going to be an amazing source of economic growth. And for as long as I can remember, you know, one of the things I really want to be part of, and I'm sure you're the same in the parliament is getting to a spot where we are a renewable energy superpower. There's no reason why we can't be. We just haven't had the will or the leadership in recent years to do that. So I'm a, I'm a believer. And, um, and I'm older than you, and I hope that it comes in my lifetime because, you know, we, can't, we really can't wait for that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but when it comes to gas, we've got to be realistic about gas too. I mean, we can't, you know, again, we can't just kind of wake up one day and flick the switch uh, to to you know, 100% renewable or something like that. And the reality is that gas is going to play a role and we've got to make sure that we've got all the strict environmental controls and all of the things that matter so that, that things don't go wrong. But in reality, gas is going to be part of it. Uh, and I think our job, for those of us who want to get uh, energy costs down and make them more renewable and get emissions costs down and hit that mid-century target that Anthony uh, has announced, uh, is to make sure that we get the policy settings in place so we can get more renewable energy in the system. The sooner and better and more effective we are at doing that, the less we will need some of these other sources. Yeah. Um, look, I've had a, a great question in on the issue of superannuation from Addison. Addison's a just-finished school. We well, might even be in year 12. Isn't that terrible? Now I'm forgetting my years, but he's young, lives in my suburb, fabulous um, young guy and uh, is very interested in the finance sector, but he's asked with people cashing out their superannuation accounts to keep them afloat, it's causing years of damage to workers. What's Labor going to do to help get to that 12.5% super contribution? Now, in fact, there's a couple of issues in that question. We were already fighting to get to the 12.5% super because we know what a difference that would make to the lives of a worker when they retire. Um, but now it's even harder. The amount of money that's been taken out of super, especially by young people, and, and it all happened before JobKeeper came in when, when there really wasn't any, no clear indication of what the government support was going to be. Um, so now that you've seen the figures on that, what's your thinking about how we tackle this superannuation um, black yeah. hole? Yeah, terrific question, Addison. Really, I mean, this is one of the this is one of the kind of concerning chunks of what's going on right now. Because, as you rightly identify, uh, people not that much older than you, if they take ten thousand dollars or do that twice out of their account, that will have massive implications uh, when they forego all of the interest and all of the earnings on that uh, over a lifetime of work. So, we weren't keen on the government going down this path. Uh, the 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 best interpret, the most kind interpretation of it uh, was that they made a mistake. The least kind interpretation of it is that they, you know, they are using this crisis as an excuse to diminish super, having not been big believers in it 
really throughout. And there's some characters in, as you probably know, Addison, you sound like you follow it closely. There are some characters that we look at across the parliament uh, who are crazy on this stuff. Like they literally want to take the compulsory out of compulsory super. They want to freeze the superannuation guarantee at uh, 9.5% rather than it going to 12, as Susan rightly said. Um, and so we've got a defensive task to play here to make sure that the system doesn't get intentionally ruined uh, by the government. Uh, and if we do that effectively, then once we sort of protect the system, which is one of the best achievements of Australia in the last three or four decades, once we protect the system from these raids, then we can get better at working out on the front foot what role can super play in the recovery? Mm. I've done some briefings re recently about uh, big super funds who are making massive investments in renewable energy, in the agriculture sector, in advanced manufacturing. They're actually part of the solution. Super is part of the solution and we need to see it that way rather than spending all of our time arguing with these people who think superannuation bizarrely is part of the problem. Yeah. And um, just a bit of a theme that's coming through here that I think people are hearing is uh, the desire to get some, um, you know, we call it bipartisanship, but some frameworks that are agreed that we can use to move forward on a whole lot of really big key issues. Uh, some of them we thought we had, we thought we had agreement on super and the, you know, that was something that we, you just would have thought was done and dusted after the, you know, decades old fight. Um, and there, I've had a question from uh, one, one previewer who said, what is the difference to an adversarial discussion and mutual dialogue? Uh, because he sees where we're heading, but he wants to know how do you, will you know that you've been able to engage on these issues and rather than just critique it? So, yeah. you know, how do you, so how you're, you work very hard to try and do this. And I think... I think many of us do within the parliament, although sometimes you've just got to call out the rubbish that they're saying. Uh, but by and large, it's that's the approach. So it, how how is that different to just being critical? Yeah, I mean, it's good to acknowledge that it is, it is hard to strike the right balance. And, you know, who knows from day to day if, you, if you're doing it effectively. I think some people are better at it than, than others, frankly. Um, the way I look at it is you agree where you can and you disagree where you must. That's that's my kind of frame for thinking through some of these issues. Um, Anthony, as you know, Susan, you would have heard him say it a, a thousand times. His approach is to look for outcomes rather than arguments. Sometimes an argument is necessary, but the first priority is the, is the outcome. And people have got different ways of putting their view, but that largely describes what we're on about here. And I think there is an appetite in the community when things are extremely tough as they are right now, that people want to know that our first port of call is to try to make something work. Um, and as you know, you know, we haven't held anything up in the parliament so far when it comes to support for the economy. We've certainly made our voices heard where we think things can be done better or more urgently or where we think there's going to be an issue with super or something like that. But one of the things that we learned from the global financial crisis a decade or so ago is that holding things up in the Senate is really damaging. And so we've tried to avoid that. Uh, and if you take that principle and apply it to some of these other areas that the government is now talking about, whether it's industrial relations or the national cabinet or something like that, then our view is if we can get good outcomes that way, terrific. You know, we wanna support good, sensible outcomes. That's our preference. Um, but if we think things are going off track, then we've got a responsibility to the people who elect us and send us there. They don't send us there to be silent. They send us there to, to be impactful. 
right. and sometimes being impactful means disagreeing. Yes, and I do have people who sometimes say, oh, you, you never agree with anybody. And I think partly that's because the bits that get heard are the bits of disagreement as well. Yeah. And having yeah. been a journalist, I know very rarely would I run politicians all agreeing with each other. You know, furious agreement is not great news unless it's unusual. And so I think that's right. the filter that things get seen through even more so these days with social media. Um, look, this question sits slightly outside your portfolio in, in some ways, but for me, the economy is about how we all function and how we all work. And telecommunications out here in the Hawkesbury and Blue Mountains is yeah. really key. Um, it undermines education. Uh, I had one student who was without internet, one year 12 student without internet for a month during the lockdown. And that, you know, has serious impacts on your ability to study and learn. Uh, small businesses have struggled with very poor mobile reception and poor internet because the NBN we've got, a lot of it is wireless, satellite. Uh, we've got fibre to the node in upper parts of the mountains. I apparently am going to get the NBN tomorrow, but I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> that will be fibre to the curb. But we have other parts that have fibre to the premises. But Sarah says to me, um, when will the Hawkesbury receive telecommunications on par with the rest of the country? And, and I looked at that and I think, well, sadly, it's a really bitsy NBN system that we have. Uh, and it does undermine our ability to have a really strong locally based economy because people can't function as well from home as they should be able to or yeah. in small communities. Is that now we see it here, I scream and shout about it a lot. My fear is that we're not the only place that finds it. that's the case. Uh, spot on. Uh, and it won't surprise you to hear that there's been a bit of conversation lately about this issue in Eden Monero, uh, the electorate uh, around Canberra. I spent a couple of days there with Anthony last week. Uh, and this came up there and it comes up in your community and it comes up in a range of communities. What, what's happened here in the, the shortest possible version is that the MBN began its life as something that was going to be amazing. Uh, and then when um, Malcolm Turnbull actually made the decision to, to make a mix of technologies, uh, then that compromised the system in a lot of ways. And so the technology that you have access to uh, depends very, um, well, depends almost exclusively on where you live. Uh, and I don't know about you, Susan, but I think we're trying to um, eliminate sort of place-based disadvantage, but the NBN is actually kind of turbocharging that in lots of ways. And I don't need to tell you about that. Um, and I am worried that for different people, um, the experience is so vastly different so that when we, not just when we have a crisis like this and people are working from home and all the rest of it, but in normal times as well, uh, it changes people's opportunities. And that my area doesn't, my area is an urban community, but even in my area, uh, I hear stories about dads who put their kids in the car at 7.30 at night and drive and sit at the car park at McDonald's to access the Wi-Fi. Uh, and the kids do the homework on, on iPads sitting in the car outside Maccas. And so right around the country, there are issues like this. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the horses bolted in a lot of ways in terms of the installation of the MBN. But we should always be looking for ways to make it more accessible to people for the reasons that you identify. Yeah. And, and when you combine that here with the poor mobile coverage, 
so even in fairly urban areas, lots of us don't get mobile reception inside our homes. And one of the things we've learned is that when you build a home to the highest bushfire standards, that actually blocks the mobile reception even further. So we've got these issues that, that are, you know, on one hand, in being government company, on the other hand, commercial operators like Telstra and Optus. Uh, and for the survival and for thriving of small businesses and in peri-urban areas, that's obviously something we'll have to just keep working on um, from opposition and perhaps one day from government. Uh, so it is when it is probably the biggest biggest single issue that people raise with me is poor telecommunications in in normal times, let alone in these times. Um, now, look, there's a there, there's a whole lot of questions, and if you're wondering why I've got my phone in my hand, if you've just tuned in, um, there's the questions that people are writing into the comments are being um, shared with me. There's a lot of them. We're not going to get through all of them, Jim. You'll. Uh, you won't even need to take them on notice, but but just so you know, there are a lot of people asking really good questions here. Um, the uh, the process of um, of us. Uh, trying to pull together what we think the future looks like. I've been saying to people, we've been, we've been working on that. Um, uh, but in terms of what happens next and how uh, the parliament moves forward, you and I are back in parliament next week. Are, are we expecting to see um, more assistance that will need to be legislated? Is the government just going to be able to bring packages in what is the expectation about what where we go where we're starting to go from here? Yeah, I think it'll be sort of two categories. There will be some legislation out of the announcements. I think they'll make the you know their housing announcement tomorrow, for example, and that will have some legislation attached to it. Um, and there are other bits and pieces that they'll need to legislate from their response to the crisis. But in the at the very tail end of the last time we sat. The government tried to sort of normalise parliament, not just make it about crisis response. And so they introduced a whole stack of bills. I forget the number now, uh, but there'll be a bit of uh, more routine um, uh, matters to kind of process as well. So it'll be a combination. Clearly what will get the attention will be the new things, the, the responding to the crisis. Um, but the government's doing their best to kind of make it seem like, you know, at least to some extent it's business as usual. Mm. Well, look, there's so many areas where people don't think it's business as usual. So Sam Samuel is asking, um, how do we get the government to reduce the number of casualised, insecure jobs in the economy and increase the number of permanent full-time job, full jobs? And he comments that there's so much labour hire. So this mm. jobs area and how those jobs are created and what kind of jobs they are, um, they're, they're, this is the opportunity for us to not just go, snap back to whatever there was before because the casualisation of the workforce, you know, it shows just how vulnerable people's financial um, base is. We saw it very quickly with those queues at, at Centrelink. Um, your, what are your thoughts around how we not only get jobs but get good quality um, permanent jobs where people actually can take sick pay, maybe even have a holiday. Yeah, I think in many ways the the defining feature of the economy um, in the lead up to the crisis was was insecure work, uh, which flows from all the various um, um, issues around casualisation, uh, the rise of the gig economy, all of these sorts of things have obviously had 
uh, made work far less secure. And then when the crisis hit, I think really the whole nation understood just how precarious people's financial situation is. Um, and so it is an opportunity for us to reflect on that, whether we really want that uh, as the defining feature, not just of our labour market, but of our economy more broadly. Um, there was a very heartening uh, court case outcome about casualisation, about people's right uh, to not be casuals forever uh, if they're doing, you know, full-time hours and, and uh, you know, jobs that look like they're full-time but just casualised as an excuse not to pay benefits. Um, so there's a, potent, there's a development there, which is good. Um, the government's working group working with the ACTU is one of those on casualisation. I don't know what that might uh, come up with, but the, the unions are involved in that conversation. Um, so hopefully there's some you know, kind of progress that can be made there. Um, but I really think if you, if you could kind of fix one thing or if you could think about one thing that worries us most about the economy, that if you could click your fingers and fix it, it's the fact that there's so much insecurity. Uh, and I, you know, um, you know, it's not that hard to imagine how hard it is for people to provide for the people they love based on living week to week, fortnight to fortnight on hours that might change without the safety net of sick leave and all of that sort of thing. So it's a big problem. We've got to fix it. Let's see what the government does. People are sceptical that they'll uh, take sufficient steps, but let's see where they get to. And then if more needs to be done, then, then obviously we'll look to do it. Yeah. Now I've got a group of questions from Luke and Shane and Laurie. And these this is around um, things like a jobs guarantee as proposed by modern monetary theory and a wellbeing budget rubric as the New Zealand government has. And, uh, and the pr principle of a basic income policy. Where do those things sit? They're all three really big things. I've lumped them together. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all yours. We'll, we'll, we, can spend a week, we can spend a week on this, Susan. <laughs> um, they, are, they, are um, they are big ideas. Uh, and I can understand why in uh, times like these, more and more people are you know, trying to understand them and, and discuss them. Um, I think to sort of take them in turn, uh, I'm not a big uh, modern monetary theory guy. Um, I think there are issues with it. I know why people are attracted to it in, in theory, but I think there are some issues with it. But that doesn't mean that I don't think uh, that when the community or the economy really needs it, that there shouldn't be substantial government intervention, that the power of the budget should lean against these difficult times in the economy, like in the last couple of months, like during the global financial crisis, like in the early 1990s with Working Nation, it's important. Uh, the difference is really how you how you fund that, um, and that's where me and MMT kind of um, diverge. Um, in terms of the job guarantee part of that, when they are often talk talk spoken about at the same time. Um, you know, it depends on your definition of, of a jobs guarantee, but Anthony Albanese has already, already talked about the work we're doing on a jobs and training compact, which is some version of that. The Victorian state government has got a working for Victoria fund, which is half a billion dollars, which councils bid for, and then they employ people as a form of job guarantee to work in the caring industries, environmental restoration and the like. So there's all kinds of models. Uh, and I think if we understand that unemployment will be higher for longer, then, then naturally there'll be an appetite to look at all that. Uh, wellbeing budget, I, I really like where the New Zealanders, have, I, I'm, a, I'm really soft on the Kiwis. I've got a massive New Zealand population here, but not just because of that, not just being soft on uh, my mate Grant Robertson, the finance minister over there, but they've taken some terrific steps towards measuring, I call it measuring what matters. They call it a wellbeing budget. 
I gave a speech to the Australia Institute in about February, I think, if you want to look it up, um, about wellbeing budgets and measuring what matters and getting better at doing that so that we can make growth more sustainable and inclusive. So I really, I really laid out some thoughts there. And that's what um, Frydenberg gets into me from time to time as if, um, you know, these are some kind of wacky ideas, but they're really quite mainstream ideas. On well, the universal basic, sorry. I was just saying that what we, might, what, what we might do on that is find the link and put it in the comments so people can click on that right. after, after. Yeah, yeah, go on. And yeah, terrific. UBI. And the last one was UBI. Yeah, look, I, I, uh, I don't love the U in UBI. Uh, I don't mean you, Susan, or, uh, or, or you, listeners, but I, um, uh, I think the more you, universal you make something, the more you trade away your capacity to do more for people who need it more. And I think one of the, you know, our social security system is far from perfect, obviously, and we talked before about Job Seeker and Newstart. Um, but I think one of the good things about our system is how well targeted it is because the better you target the people who really need it, the more you can do for them. Uh, and if you believe in social mobility as much as Susan and I do, if you believe in, you know, um, making sure that we, you know, that we can we help people who are the most vulnerable in our society, then I think the you is a problem. Because you can't afford to give massive amounts to everybody. Uh, the, the broader you spread it, the, the thinner it is. Uh, and so I'm reluctant to go down that path. But having said it, on the BI part of UBI, uh, clearly, um, you know, job seeker can't go back to the old new start rate. Uh, that is not a sufficiently basic income for people to look after themselves and look for work, which is what we expect of them in most cases. And so we can do better there. Yeah, and, and look, I think the real thing that's fundamentally for me what's attractive about the concept of UBI is that it re reduces the stigma and uh, it's the stigma attached to asking for assistance. You know, we are terrible at asking for help, most of us. Uh, so a way that you access it without a stigma, I think, is one of the key things that attracts people to that concept. Um, yeah. But as you but say... But don't you think as well, Susan, that... There's something about this crisis and the fact that I think 800,000 additional Australians have gone on to JobSeeker. I think for a lot of people who might have had a, uh, you know, a shallow view of government support, I think maybe that's, hopefully that's changed. You know, the idea that needing government support makes you some kind of bludger. I mean, we, we have never believed that. But, but maybe there's, if something can come good, something good can come of this crisis, it's the idea that you know, lots of people from time to time need a hand. And, and you know, first world, first rate, wealthy country like ours, that's our first responsibility is to look out for each other and look after each other. Uh, so hopefully that kind of Howard era rubbish about people on unemployment benefits, hopefully that's being chipped away at. Look, look, I hope so. I think the challenge is for leadership of the country is that you've got these two groups of people emerging, those who are totally flat chat, completely busy working, don't have a moment to stop, and some of them um, not making a lot of money doing it but hanging in there and doing it. Then another group who are um, unfortunately without work, not by choice but by circumstance, and the perception is they're sitting back watching Netflix. Uh, and I'm, I have had families tell me of some underlying resentment that they're starting to see as this continues. So the real challenge for leadership is to be able to 
um, put all those into context so that we stay together rather than start to divide because that's where the um, the stigma and the resentment for people who might still be receiving government assistance comes from. So mm. that's the tricky course I think we have. And you look at what's happening in the states where division has, you know, rent that those the communities apart so much that that, that I think that's the test for leadership is how we stay united as a community as we navigate what is a very uneven uh, economic um, scene. It's not like yeah. we're all in this together in the same way. We're all in this in different ways. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, look, I, I stay hopeful. Someone said you're a bloody optimist. Well, you know, <laughs> what choice do you There have? are worse things to be called than that. <laughs> That's right. So, but, but I can see some challenges ahead. Right. Just Well, we've still got, um, we've got about 10 minutes and I'm just double-checking messages coming in. But there are a couple of other things, and this one f- feeds in from what we're doing, just uh, on, on robo-debt. Um, you know, it's not your precise portfolio, and Bill's been doing an incredible job alongside Linda Burney uh, in prosecuting the these um, robo debts. And great to see that, in spite of the government failing to apologise, that they've been stopped from what they were doing and have to pay money back. But but the whole principle of not accepting responsibility for it, that kind of goes to the issue that we're talking about in terms of being a leader and, and how this government leads. Yeah, RoboDebt is a sort of a, it's almost like a fable, isn't it? It's about, you know, it's about a lack of that kind of leadership that you were just uh, describing a, a moment ago. It's sort of trying to pick at, you know, a kind of a sore and trying to sort of benefit in some way from that animosity or something or that resentment that exists or has existed in part of our community and so I think in lots of ways it says a lot um, about the way that the current government goes about things for years now and you've been a prominent part of this too you know we have been saying that going after the people after people on the basis of an algorithm without any human checking was you know egregiously unfair but I think what really changed things and this is where we do um uh, tip our hat to, to Bill Shorten is when he helped become make it become a legal issue, a class action issue, and all of a sudden there was the prospect that Morrison and Porter as the original architects and Stuart Robert as the overseer of this debacle might end up in the in the dock, you know, in court over it, then all of a sudden the government is willing to to try and, and settle. And so that has been a good development, but it's still got a ways to run yet. Um, and what this has turned out to be I shouldn't beat around the bush. It's the illegal thieving of people's money. Uh, and you and I both know from our constituents what it's done to people's lives. Um, and we know that in some cases people have taken their lives. Um, and so really from beginning to end, this has been the most dangerous um, debacle. Uh, and it's got a long way to run yet, uh, but it is heartening to see at least that there's been some justice for some of the victims of what the government's tried to do here. Yeah, look, it really was an experiment in cruelty um, to already vulnerable people. Um, and I was at the dog park a couple of uh, days ago and, and an older woman came up to me and she was just, uh, she said it had impacted her life so badly. Um, and she said, and I'm one of the strong ones who can fight. And so that's how she felt. Uh, so, yeah, just... I love it about... Sorry, I know you've got more questions, Susan, but isn't it wonderful? How many times in your time in, in public life 
has somebody come up to you and said, talked about something that's impacted them and said to you, but you shouldn't worry about me. It's it's the it's my neighbor or it happens all the time. People don't understand how often that happens. It, I'm hoping it's a really Australian egalitarian thing, right? But what you just described happens all the time. Look, this has happened to me. It's not great. I'm doing what I can to deal with it. But my next door neighbor is doing it really tough. Would you mind paying a call on my next door neighbor? That kind of stuff happens all the time, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. And um, what we found, what we know about this community, bushfire ravaged as it has been over various years, right. is it's really reluctant to accept help. And we know that even now there are people who have not put their hand up at all to say, actually, I could do with a bit of help because my property's burnt down or my might be my house, but it might also be my lands have gone or my fences. And they're still not asking for for help and that's you know that I guess that's that sense the Australian sense of being self-sufficient um you know which goes to the whole uh how do we make it okay to say you're not okay and that obviously has got to be part of the recovery um and and the enormous economic benefit it has of people actually feeling well and productive uh, so we haven't, I haven't got a question about mental health, but I always, people say to me, oh, no, I don't understand what the economy is. And I say, basically, it's everything because uh, I think it all feeds into it. Yeah, right. But I, I have got a question about banks I have to ask you because we haven't really touched on the banks. I've been quite disappointed at the stories I've been hearing from individual constituents about their, the hoops they have to jump through and the efforts to get bank loans. This is predominantly... Um, small businesses and people who've been trying to defer uh, payments of some sort or even get a reprieve on some some payments. And Phil say, just reminds that, you know, the short-term relief that banks are providing, and we know they are providing quite significant amounts, which is I just know lots of people they're not providing it to. Um, but the repayment holiday will be over in September. Yeah. Uh, and even though people might switch to interest only, how concerned are you about that bit of the September puzzle? Yeah, really, really concerned, Phil. Uh, and it's it's sort of timely that you you raise that because I've had now, I've spoken to three of the four big uh, big bank CEOs the last what's today, Wednesday, the last six days, I've spoken to three out of the four of them and we've had a long session with the ABA and, and Anna Bly because we are worried about this. Uh, the banks have actually been quite accessible to us and, and, and they have actually done some good in the system, but I, I'm aware that there's been times where it's, people have found it too difficult and we've spoken to them about that too and they've acknowledged that and put their hands up and tried to make it better. Uh, but this... The cliff that we were talking about before when it came to government support also applies to the banking system. It applies to the regulators of the banking system. Uh, it applies really across the board. And so the banks are trying to calibrate what they do with what the government does. And that's why it's a bit of a shame that there's been a delay in this review of JobKeeper because it means it'll take the banks longer to work out how they calibrate. But the same problem we described before, you wake up in the last Monday in September and your JobKeeper's gone, the same might be true of some of these accommodating uh, you know, lending arrangements. Um, they, the banks are conscious of this. They don't know how they're going to crack it yet, uh, but they are very, very, very focused on it. Yeah, well, they. I said to, when I've followed things up with them, I've said, you've got an opportunity here to really support people. And I think the thing is, though, that small businesses don't necessarily like to borrow more debt. Uh, and all the research I've shown is that women in small business are even less likely to want to have debt. 
because uh, they just aren't prepared to put put any of the family assets at risk, assuming that there, you know, that there are any there the, the, with housing ownership declining. So yeah, I think it's a really complex puzzle. And I think there's a big piece of the work over time, get through this, and there'll still, still be work to do with the banks. The other question I've got that we haven't touched on is just to do with agriculture, because we are as a peri-urban area, there's not masses of agriculture in the Blue Mountain side of my electorate, but there's a lot in the Hawkesbury. Um, and it's great to be coming out of drought, only to have bushfires and floods. Um, but the issue of foreign ownership has come up from uh, another fill, uh, just in terms of um, the, the amount. Now, I get this question a lot that Australia's agriculture is being bought by somebody else. And when I look at the data, it looks like we've always had very significant uh, foreign ownership from various places at different times in history. Um, but I seem to remember that one of the things we did in government or started in government was to have a register of it so that you could actually right. go and look at it. And my understanding is the register development of that continued, but it isn't as accessible as we would like it to be. But is that something that, that you've put, not in this time necessarily, but pre-coronavirus, uh, had yeah. any thoughts on yeah, so I used to work on this um, on foreign investment when I worked for Wayne Swan. It was one of the things I did then. Um, and what I sort of learned from that period was uh, foreign investment relies on three things. Transparency, which is the register. Consistency, which is communicating to uh, different types of businesses, um, you know, making sure that the decisions aren't hard to explain when you stack them all up against each other. Uh, and most importantly, national interest. Um, and, you you know, we, we have desperately throughout our history needed foreign investment, which is the point that Susan made, and we still need it uh, in one way or another. But we want to make sure it's the right kind of investment, the, the sort of job-creating investment, which has benefits for us and not just for the, the purchaser. Um, and we were talking before about finding ways to agree with the government on some things. The government actually did a really good thing in this in this space, when the crisis was on us and a lot of businesses lost a lot of value, what we were all worried about in the parliament is that there would be a lot of opportunistic buying of these businesses in, in peril. And so what the government did was that there's usually a threshold where if a, if a bid is below a threshold, you don't have to clear it through the Foreign Investment Review Board. And what the government said is for the next six months, we're going to take that down to zero. So everything goes through us and we make sure everything's above board. And we supported that. We, we supported that within five minutes of hearing about it. Um, because we think that's a good idea. And it's just another way that you've got to make sure that your arrangements match up with those, those objectives I was talking about, transparency, consistency, but most of all, national interest. Yeah, look, and, and uh, yeah, I, we could have a longer conversation about it, all of those things, but I'm really conscious that time is up. But there's one last question I'm going to ask you that... Um, that uh, Susan has sent in, another Susan, and... Um, the, and this is to do with bushfire recovery funds. So one of the things you and I have, have been talking about prior to coronavirus uh, really taking hold was 
lack of transparency in the delivery of bushfire funds. Now the real concern is, and this is Susan's question, how do we know that those funds aren't simply going to get transferred into tackling coronavirus? Uh, how can we be sure that they get making it on the ground? Because the data that's coming out of in inquiries, multiple inquiries, suggests that the money isn't coming through very fast. And that's how it feels on the ground. So, so how do we keep the government honest on on making sure bushfire recovery money is on top of coronavirus recovery money? I've got to be honest with you, well, both Susans, um, I don't think there is any guarantee uh, that they won't try and claw back some of this money that was committed to, to bushfire relief. I'm, I am worried about that. Um, and one of the reasons why that's an avenue available to them is because they got so little of it out the door um, you know, they, they made the big announcement and they, they got the kind of pats on the back and they got the front page of the major newspapers. But on the ground, a lot of people are saying, well, where is it? Um, that's true in your community, I know, Susan, but, and it's certainly true in Eden Monero, where I, where I was last week too, where people were very welcoming and, and very pleased with the announcements about relief. But as our colleague Murray Watts pointed out repeatedly in some of these um parliamentary committees that he's involved in, you know, a, a, a fraction of it's getting out the door. Uh, so we've got to keep the pressure up because if we if we don't do that, uh, they will be tempted to claw it back and spend it in other areas. And that would be based on the falsest imaginable premise that everything in the bushfire affected regions is all of a sudden fine because uh, COVID's arrived and impacted other parts of the country as well. Yeah. Well, all right, we will pursue those things in Parliament next week, down there for two weeks. I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for giving up on what is a huge day uh, and helping give the people of Macquarie uh, some input into uh, what they worry about in the economy and, and sharing your ideas with them. Thanks very much, Jim. Hopefully I can come visit you in person soon, Susan, and all your constituents. Yeah, to the, to the real Springwood. <laughs> Thanks, Susan. See you.